Welcome, everybody, to the weekend. Before we jump into the last message of our series, Creed, I want to invite all of you to join us for the weekends coming up. We're going to be talking about families, and it's going to be multi-generational. So grandfather and grandmother, uh, parents, kids, students, those of you who are single, who are part of a family, may think that you're going to have a family someday, you really need to tune in. Going to be some really great, relevant teaching from our speakers that are going to help all of us become stronger and better families, and that's so important right now. So join us for Family Matters beginning next weekend. Now, this is the last message, as I said, in our series, Creed. And the word creed means to believe. So we've been talking about how important it is to know what you believe and believe what you know that there are just certain things we cannot compromise on as followers of Christ. We hang on to them dearly. In essence, what we've been talking about is doctrine. And I know wherever you're joining me right now, whether it's in one of our venues, one of our sites, in your home, or on the road someplace, as soon as you hear the word doctrine, you're like, ugh, it sounds so heavy, it sounds so boring. But the truth is, All of us have doctrine in our lives. Even an atheist lives by a doctrine, by a creed, by a belief. Now, there are three characteristics to doctrine. One is something you put your faith in, a statement of truth you put faith in. Secondly, it means you're risking your whole life on that truth that you're believing in. And thirdly, you promote what you believe in. You kind of are willing to talk about it because you feel so comfortable and confident in that. And honestly, that's why some people balk at the idea of doctrine. They say, that's why I don't like doctrine. I don't believe there's just one belief system. I believe that people should have the freedom to believe what they want and actually, you know, believe in what you feel because what you feel is your truth. The problem is, in that very popular notion in our society today, that in itself then is a doctrine. If you think that people can believe what they feel and whatever you feel is the truth, in essence, what you're saying is, that's what I'm putting my faith in. That's what I'm risking my life on, that that is truth. And for the fact that you want to state that and argue against any singular view means that you are passionate about promoting that. Which then comes down to this. Am I willing to risk my life on what the words of the world are, or am I willing to risk my life on the Word of God? Well, I personally have faith and trust and want to promote what I believe the Word of God teaches, not what the world teaches. So we're going to talk about the importance of God's Word, the doctrine, the belief that the Word of God is the truth, the truth of God for us. In order to do that, we're going to be looking at Psalm 19. So if you want to follow along, grab your Bible in whatever uh, way you have it, electronically or in paper, and turn open to Psalm 19 and follow along. Strangely enough, we're actually going to begin with what I call God's wordless truth. God's wordless truth. Look what it says in Psalm 19, verse 1. Scripture says this, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. So what's David 
talking about here? Well, obviously, what he's talking to us about is nature. And how nature, without speaking a word, still speaks and reveals the glory of God. In essence, what David is saying is, look up, look down, look all around you. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. God is speaking in a nonverbal way. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, nature speaks without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the entire earth. I guess what you could say is that creation, nature, is really the, the first evidence of nonverbal communication. And all of us know about nonverbal communication because we practice it all the time. You know, the look, right, that sometimes your spouse gives you or your kids give you or your parents give you or a friend gives you, which says, stop what you're doing and pay attention to me right now. While I was studying, I came across a pastor who was talking about nonverbal communication. He was sharing how oftentimes when he's preaching, his wife will send him nonverbal cues like, hey, you're doing a good job, kind of a verbal, nonverbal, or um, that was confusing, nonverbal, or you've gone long enough, nonverbal. And I was thinking to myself, I wonder if my wife, Marsha, has been trying to send me nonverbal cues all these years of preaching. So I thought, you know, I'll ask her. I mean, honey, have, have you been trying to communicate to me nonverbally when I'm, when I'm preaching? And she said something like this, what do you think this has meant? I'm just kidding. My wife would never do that to me. I don't think. But we all communicate nonverbally to each other, don't we? And in fact, nature does that, and we feel its effect on our lives. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, let's, let's take a look. Look at the ocean. Isn't that gorgeous? Isn't that beautiful? When you stand in front, even of a picture like this, but when you're at the ocean and you see this, I don't know about you, but it just, it just overwhelms me. I love standing in front of the ocean. I just, I just get a sense of God's overwhelming power when I see those waves and the vastness of the sea. Or how about when you see a beautiful meadow up against the mountains? I don't know about you, but I, I, I kind of a peace comes over me when I see or experience something like that? Or how about when you see an eagle soaring? I don't know about you, but when I see that eagle soaring, I just get this sense of a freedom, regalness. Or how about snow-capped mountains? Man, when I see that, I just, I'm, I'm in awe. I get this sense of grandeur that overcomes me. I get caught up in that. Or how about when you bend over and you look at the most beautiful petals, meticulous, bright colors of a flower. And you're just overwhelmed with not only the beauty, but the detail of all of that. You know, when we see those kinds of things, even though a word is not spoken, we have to be honest and say they affect our lives. I mean, David looked up at the sun and listened to what he said. He said, God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. He rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. 
In other words, David is saying, the son, it reminds me like of this bridegroom running to the bride at the altar, or it reminds me of an athlete running to finish that race to, to get the medal, to get the prize. And he says, it just reminds me how God has put it in its place. And when I see that huge, magnificent sun, I'm overwhelmed with what God has done with nature. So why do all these things in nature, why do they have such an effect on us? Why, why do they move us, so to speak? Why do they put us in awe and wonder? Because they're all the handiwork of God. And all of them, in essence, are shouting to us, non-verbally, God is, God is, God is. And for those of us living in Minnesota, this time of the year, spring into summer, is so beautiful as, as the whole earth up here comes to life again. And there's so much wonder and awe and beauty to enjoy and to watch and to see. And the smile that it brings out on your face. Marsha and I were driving the other day and we saw um, mom and dad goose, uh, geese, they were kind of going along and, and with them with their little goslings following along. And we stopped the car and just didn't say anything, but just grabbed the picture because there was just something so precious about that. It was, it was moving us like nature, I'm sure, moves you many different times. And so there's some implications from this. And one implication is, is this, and I think it's pretty profound. And that is that there's no other way to explain nature other than the fact that God made it and he made it to reflect his glory and to move us. I mean, if you try to explain nature from, let's say, an Eastern mysticism perspective, then according to Eastern mysticism, everything we see in nature is really just an illusion. Or if you take a materialist perspective, an evolutionary perspective, it's all just an accident. I don't know about you, but when I look at nature, there's something so unique about it. It's so detailed. It's so perfectly designed. I can't help but think about God himself. And you know what's also very cool? Is that you don't even have to be a believer in God. God is so gracious that he even allows what he's done in nature to even move our hearts, even the heart of an atheist. Cannot help but be in awe of a beautiful sunset. And the third implication is simply this. If all we have to know about God is revealed to us in nature, then it is totally incomplete. I need more than just nature telling me God is. I need something more specific. And that leads us then to God's perfect truth. We had God's wordless truth, but that moves us then toward God's perfect truth. And God's perfect truth is his word. Listen to David again. He says, beginning of verse 7 of Psalm 19, the instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving, I like, I'm going to just underline some of these words, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord, he says, are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable, he says, than gold. He says, 
than even the finest gold that you can find out there. So notice how he's speaking about God's commands. Very rich, right? He goes on, he says, they are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb, which is so good. They are a warning to your servant and a great reward for those who obey them. Now you could take the rest of the day to meditate on Psalm 19 and verses 7 through 11. But what we see here is David describing the power of God's word, the greatness of God's word. Now what I want to do is I just want to look a little bit at the power of God's word with you. So let's think about that together. First of all, one of the things that's clear to us is that God's word has the power to revive a person's soul. God's word has the power to revive a person's soul. Uh, Derek Kidner, in his commentary on the Psalms, says that this word soul is our psyche. It's our inner being. And he says God's word can revive our inner being. We've talked about this before, and it's so true, and you're probably feeling it. This past year, year and a half, has just been so hard on our soul. At least it has been on mine. With all the things that we've all had to wrestle with outside of our lives in society and in our lives, and all the stress of that, a lot of people feel like their soul is worn down. Do you? Guess what? God's word is there to revive, to reawaken our souls, if we'll let it and see it that way. I think the church is in need of being reawakened. I think so many churches, the soul of so many churches is weary and worn down. I'm not talking about the building. I'm not talking about the staff, if you have a staff in in your church. I'm talking about the body of Christ. It's like we need need refreshing. We need renewal. And the place we go to that is God's word. But we don't think about it that way. And yet I want to let you know that if it was not for the word of God, I just couldn't survive. Because I've learned over time to go to the word of God to be revived. And God God did something special for me just recently in his word. He just said something to me that revived my soul. And I want to share it with you, if you don't mind. So it's a little bit off course, but it's very personal, and it it really amplifies this point of reviving our soul. I've been doing my quiet time in the book of Ephesians, and I was reading, and I came across these verses that just spoke deeply to me, all right? They moved me. Now, maybe it won't be as endearing to you, but it was for me. Paul says, when I think of all this, and he meant it previous to that, when he thinks about all the, of, that God has done for us in Christ, he says, I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. And I just had to stop there for a moment and reflect. That's right. We just talked about nature. He created everything in the heavens and on earth. I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources. I just began thinking, God, I focus so much on the resources of this world. Help me to get myself focused on your glorious, unlimited spiritual resources for me. He says, 
from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength. Boy, do I need that right now. Inner strength through his spirit. So the word's telling me you can be recharged, you can be revived by the spirit of God that lives in you, but you've got to focus on him. And here's how he does it. And this is what so moves me. He said, then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And when I read those words, I just thought of myself. Let me just draw it for you. I just thought of myself, you know, if, if I were a flower or a plant, okay, right? I've got these roots. And, you know, plants, flowers, they, they take up uh, nutrients through those roots. They take up water, minerals to give them life and beauty, right? And so I thought to myself, where have my roots been lately? And I realized, man, I've just had my roots too much in in politics, or too much in materialism, or too much in, you know, uh, COVID-19, or too much in other people's opinions and ideas. And when you're drawing up from those things, it, you, don't, you don't shine, you wilt. So many of us are wilted right now. We're like flowers that don't have enough water. We're dying because our roots are in the wrong thing. Paul says, put your roots in the love of God the love of God for you. And so I just took some time, and what I did is I said, God, forgive me for putting my roots in the wrong places. And I just said, Lord, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, I'm going to root down in you right now and your love for me. I'm just going to accept your love for me. I'm not going to try to perform. I can't earn it. I'm just going to accept it, that you love me despite who I am and all my issues. You love me. I want you to be my source. How about you? It's reviving, man. God's word revives us. All right, let's move on. Another way we see the, the, the power of God's word, God's word will show you how much he loves and values you. So there you go. I just explained that. But God's word will show you how much he loves and values you as you spend time in his word and learn to understand it and grow in it. Thirdly, God's word is going to make you wise. God's word will make you wise. Now, there are two ways of becoming wise. One is in the school of hard knocks. I do not recommend it. Or the other is to believe what God says and take it to be truth. I could tell you, for instance, that the wall that is nearest you right now is hard and if you run into it full force, you will break your nose. And you can believe me. You can say, okay, I believe you're right. I won't do that. Or you can say, I don't believe you, and run full force into the wall, break your nose, have blood everywhere. And then you would say to me, you know something? You were right. It's a hard surface. I won't ever do that again. Now, wouldn't it have been so much easier if you just had listened to the word? Same thing is true for us. God's word is there for us to listen to. I love what it says in verse 11. They are warning to your servant a great reward for those who obey the words of God. So heed the warning and obey God's word. Next, the word of God, God's word, will delight, will delight your heart. Look what he says in verse 8 and 10. He says, the commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. 
They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. Because you see, gold and honey from the comb can't go past today. They are short-term. They lose their value quickly. You cannot take them with you when you die. God's word, God's word is here today and tomorrow. It is eternal. And so that's why we want to put our trust in what God has to say rather than in what human beings have to say. Now, what's amazing when you read the scripture is that, as David puts it, it is sweet. It's like honey, honey right, dripping right from the comb. It's really tasty. And C.S. Lewis, in his book on the Psalms, Reflection on the Psalms, which I have in my library, uh, talks about Psalm 19. He says, you know, it kind of does not make sense. He says, the promises of God, the mercies of God, yeah, those are sweet like honey. But he says, honestly, some of the commands of God to our flesh, to us, are hard to, are hard to take. They, they leave kind of a, a, a bitter taste in our mouths. When I was a kid and I would get sick, my dad had this stuff he would buy. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or not, but it was called Buckley's Original Cough Syrup. It is the worst tasting stuff I have ever tasted. I mean, it had like pine tar in it. It was so gross that when I swallowed it, it made my whole body say, I will never cough again because I don't ever want to taste that again. And let's be honest, there are some things in God's word that we don't like the taste of it. We don't like being told that we have to love our enemies. That does not taste good. We don't like being told to turn the other cheek to someone who slaps us in the face. That does not taste good. We don't like being told that we need to forgive those who hurt us. That doesn't taste good. We don't like to be told that there are certain prohibitions on sexuality and we have to live within certain boundaries because it may not taste good to our flesh. So the question becomes, how is it I can, I can experience this taste of God in my life for his word, for his whole word? How can it all taste good to me, even those commands? And before I answer that question, I just want to take a time out, okay? And I want to take a time out to address something that may be kind of uh, coming up in your mind and your heart right now. What I mean by that is there may be some of you who are listening to me, or you may know people who, if they were listening to this, would kind of say, hey, wait a minute, time out. I, I really struggle with believing God's word because of some of the commands in God's word. And, you know, the most obvious one in our culture today has to do with the whole area of sexuality. And what I mean by that is the Bible says some things regarding sexuality that, culturally speaking, are not popular. And people struggle with, and even Christians struggle with it. And so what happens is we say, you know, my friends don't feel this way about it. The culture doesn't feel this way about it. I don't hear, you know, I know so many other people who are good people who don't agree with what the Bible says. Therefore, the word of the culture 
And we may not actually be saying that, but in essence, that's what we're thinking. The word of the culture then begins to kind of trump the word of God. Tim Keller commenting on this says, if you say, I don't believe in the biblical authority because I can't accept these things in the Bible, what you're actually saying is, my culture, my time and place and my viewpoint are superior to all other cultures, all other viewpoints. And what we fail to realize is that much that is put forward as a reset in our thinking or modern thinking or new thinking is nothing new under the sun. I met a man years ago in Luxor, Egypt. He was a philosopher, has doctorate in philosophy, and he just said to me, he goes, he goes there is nothing new under the sun. Everything that's taught and said has been taught and said before. It just gets recycled and dressed differently. So it's pantheism over again, or it's hedonism, or it's um, socialism, or Marxism, or totalitarianism, or whatever ism is out there. It just gets rebranded. And so what we're experiencing in our culture today is a very big battle that's going on in front of us. And as Christians, we especially, you know, who truly follow God's word, we especially fear, uh, feel it, probably fear it, and experience it. And that is, there's an attempt to displace the truth of God's word with the cultural truths of this day. But what's fascinating, a recent survey came out and said that in the American population, only 6% of Americans hold to a biblical worldview. Now, if only 6% of Americans hold to a biblical worldview, what do the other 94% hold toward? Well, some lean towards a biblical worldview, about 31%, I think it is, something like that. Others lean toward other worldviews, but basically the other 94% are just grabbing bits and pieces from things they like, that they agree with, that, that uh, agrees with their feelings, and saying, this is my belief. This is what I accept to be truth. And I think what we fail to realize is that, you know, that may last for 10, 15, 20 years, but I guarantee for some of you, your grandchildren someday are going to look at you and they're going to say, how could you believe what you believe? That's embarrassing because they'll have a different edition of the same thing, but rebranded and it's going to look differently. The problem we have is when the whole culture is using the media to say the same thing to us over and over and over again. Out with the old truth of the scriptures, in with the new truth of the culture. When you hear that from everybody around you, when your sons and daughters, that's why you gotta be part of this family series, when they are hearing that from their peers, from their classmates, from their teachers, from the media, and all its various ways that it comes at them, it is easy for them to begin to believe what the world says rather than what God's word says. Now, I was thinking about that. I was reminded of the story of the Pied Piper. Do you remember that story? It's a legend from about 1287 AD. In 1287 AD, the legend says that in a German town called Hamelin, Germany, they had a problem with rats. And one day, a Pied Piper, and the word Pied means more than two colors, so a man wearing 
multiple colored coat came into town, he said to the mayor, I'll get rid of your rats for a price. And they agreed on a price. Then he took out his uh, flute and he began to play a tune that attracted all the rats and he led them to the Vesser River where the rats drowned. When he came to get his money, the mayor reneged on the amount that he had pledged and gave him only a small amount of it. It made the piper angry and he said, I'll be back for my revenge. So on St. Paul and St. Peter's Day, while all the adults were in the church worshiping, the Pied Piper came in, but this time with a green huntsman's coat on. And he played his flute, and all the children in the town were mesmerized. And they fell in line and began to follow him out of the town. And one of the versions of the legend says that he led them to the Vesser River where they all drowned just like the rats. Satan is the Pied Piper of our culture. And he's playing a tune that is mesmerizing because it appeals to our desires and to our passions. And he says, if you will follow your passions and follow your desires, if you will accept the truth that I have for you, like he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden, he says, then you will truly be happy. Then you will truly be free. And I'm watching our world march in step with Satan the Pied Piper, and he leads us, this world, to destruction. So the question is, are you willing to bet your life, your family, on the words, the fickle, ever-changing words of the culture, or on the word of God? Which then brings us back to where we left off before I took the time out, is how can we look at the word of God and see all of its commands, even the ones that may feel a bit offensive to us, how can we see them as being as sweet as honey itself? Well, one of the things we need to accept is what C.S. Lewis said. All that is not eternal is eternally out of date. I've got to begin by seeing what the world says as being out of date. I've got to believe that what God says is eternal and true. But the problem is, sometimes when you read the scriptures, we run into what is my favorite word I shared with you last weekend, a conundrum. And the conundrum is this. In order for God's word to become tasty, all his word to become tasty in my life, for me to believe it, it's eternally true, I've got to wrestle with, with this bit of a conflict, and it goes like this. In Psalm 19, verse 12, the writer says, how can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. Now, what's interesting about this passage is that David is saying, He's asking a rhetorical question. How can, I, how can I know about all the sins that lurk in my heart? And his answer is, I can't. The Bible says our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know it, Jeremiah says. He says, so help me at least know the ones that are obvious so I can confess them and get that weight off of me. And 
you know, there are certain sins that are obvious to all of us in our lives. But David is right. There are some sins that are woven into the fabric of our character that we oftentimes have a hard time seeing. You know, I know I'm selfish, but I don't always see that I'm selfish. I know I can be jealous, but I don't always know that I'm being jealous. And, and all of us have things in our lives. I, you know, I may not think I'm being prideful. And sometimes I need others to help me see that in my life because it's so much a part of who I am. And probably the things that you're accused of sometimes by the people who love you that really upset you when they say that about you, the fact that you get so upset about it probably means it's true. You're just having a hard time accepting it and, and, and dealing with it. But see, here's the... Here's the conundrum. Look what he now says in verse 14. He says, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And the word pleasing here was a word that was used in the Old Testament to describe the sacrifice that was brought to the temple. It had to be unblemished. It couldn't have any sores. It couldn't have any disease. In essence, it had, to, it had to be a perfect sacrifice that was offered. So you've got David saying, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be perfect to you, O Lord. So the conundrum is, he just said a few verses ago, you know, how, do I, how can I know all the sins that lurk in my heart? Now he's saying, oh God, look in my heart and see perfection. It's like, which one is it? What does it mean? What are you, what are you really trying to say here? And the key to understanding What's going on here is that last phrase when he says, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You see, when he talks about redeemer, he's talking about the greater David, the son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our redeemer, who came and was born and took on human flesh. We've talked about that. And lived the life I could never live perfection before his father and died the death I should have died, but don't have to die because he died for me. And when you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus loved his father's word. He loved the scriptures. They were always the tip of his tongue. He used them to refute Satan. He used the scriptures to heal, to correct, to guide, to direct. He loved all of the scriptures, of the prophets, the lawgiver. He was immersed in those words. In fact, there's that scene at the resurrection. After the resurrection, Jesus is walking with some of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. They don't know it's him because they saw him crucified. They think he's still dead. And finally, they recognize who it is. And they say these words. They say, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And in that passage, it says, and didn't it cause our hearts to burn? Didn't it raise a passion in us? Didn't it have an effect on us when we realized that all the scriptures were pointing to him, him who is our redeemer and our savior? So here's the big idea I'm wanting you to walk away with that I think is going to help you and me to see all of Scripture being as sweet as honey 
And it goes like this, only Jesus, I got to realize that only Jesus can give me a craving for the word of God or give us a craving for the word of God when we recognize how he fulfilled every detail, every command, and every requirement of it for us. I will not love God's word. It will not be like honey in my mouth if I don't realize that Jesus actually fulfilled every aspect of the word on my behalf so that God looks at me as though I always keep his word perfectly. See, the Bible, the scriptures, the commands are not something I have to keep. They're something I get to keep because they've already been kept on my behalf by Jesus himself. Someone has put it like this. Commentator said, I delight in God's word because obeying God's law delights the one who delighted in me so much he died for me. I delight in God's word. I delight in seeking to live by his word because he delighted so much in me that he gave his life for me. And this is my joy. And this is my privilege. This is the doctrine of the word of God. If you try to keep God's word as a bunch of rules to live by, you aren't going to like it. It's not always going to taste very good. But when you see God's word through Jesus, who he is and what he's done for you, then you love the word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God, finer than the finest gold, more tasty than the honey that drips from the comb. Thank you for its truth. May we live our lives by it and know the blessings of it. May our souls be revived. In Jesus' name, amen.